time to steer the old boat back out to calm waters. It's Rick Jones, the captain of Fishbait Marketing, and we're coming to you again from the bridge. This year has been anything but calm waters, but hopefully things will start to get better soon. We're playing college football, and that's certainly a good thing. We recently did part one on getting more revenues, and today we're going to continue that discussion. Revenues solve a lot of problems, and in this pandemic, finding new revenues is essential to every business. My guest angler today is Chris Filardi, who now works at Fishbait, running our outdoor sports division, but was formerly the vice president of marketing at Warner Ladder and the creator of the Warner Ladder NCAA basketball program. We'll talk about that and a myriad of other topics from the bridge. Of course, we'll again pontificate from the soapbox and tell you a great place to eat once we're all able to get back out there on the road with Rick. Speaking of on the road with Rick, since we have not had much chance to travel during the virus, I've started a series of YouTube videos called Cooking with the Captain. So for those of you who like to cook, check out Cooking with the Captain on YouTube. We've done one on chicken parmigiana and a second one so far on shrimp and grits. I think you'll enjoy these. Okay, let's get back to revenues. A few weeks back, we talked about a system for seeking and securing new revenues. We spoke about the necessity to develop goals, annual goals, then broken down into quarterly goals, monthly goals, weekly goals, and then daily goals. Someone once said that goals are dreams with deadlines. I like that a lot. But each and every goal must have a specific plan for how to achieve that goal. And planning rolls out in four stages. Firstly, you need to list every task required to accomplish the goal. Secondly, you determine the resources required to reach the goal. Thirdly, you list the potential obstacles you may need to overcome to reach the goal. And fourthly and finally, you identify the timelines required to reach the goal. Now, we're largely a sponsorship sales agency here at Fishbait. We have several corporate clients, but we're primarily a sales company. So for every property we represent and attempt to sell, whether it's ESPN events or the Grand Ole Opry or the South Carolina Liberty Trail, we have to have a detailed plan for successfully pitching and selling that property. The planning we go through to sell sponsorships includes a process we call architecture and engineering. Architecture includes developing the property's elements and finding saleable and leverageable activities for sponsors. Engineering is the matching of those assets and elements with appropriate sponsor prospects. You know, when we get involved with a property, a lot of time we find in the architecture that they, they need more assets. <clears throat> in some cases, they have great events and no media. And so we have to get them media assets that are part of that. Or they may not have hospitality assets. We need to add those kinds of things. And then once we've developed that architecture, then again, we can go to the engineering 
that helps us match those assets to the sponsor. Now, we now know that we're going to have some early season college basketball tournaments or special events like the State Farm Champions Classic played in some bubble cities. Our client ESPN events will have several events in Orlando in the same facilities and bubble where the NBA is playing right now. We also believe we're actually going to have some postseason college football bowl games too. And for both of these, the basketball events and the football bowl games, we now actually have some things to sell after a very long spring and summer of nothing to sell. But we'll have to adjust the architecture of these events since we'll have either no fans or few fans at these events. Now, we had a very detailed plan for each of these events pre-COVID, but in a COVID world, part of our planning process is heavily discounting this year's event entitlement in order to potentially sell a multi-year sponsorship. We're also going to have to increase the number of TV units in our packages and have to have more camera visible signage to promote the sponsor because their sponsor is not going to be allowed to activate at the event with the fans. Now, we're sticking with our target list, but we're adjusting our plan as needed. And I'm sure you're doing all these things too these days. But planning during the COVID-19 pandemic reminds me of the old Yiddish saying that man plans and God laughs. Still, You have to have a plan, even if God is indeed laughing. My guest today is my friend and colleague, Chris Velarde. Chris was first my client for almost 10 years while he served as the vice president of marketing for Warner Co. and the famous Warner Ladder. Today, Chris serves as the vice president for outdoor sports at Fishbait. Chris is an avid hunter and outdoorsman and is doing a great job building an outdoor practice at Fishbait. Let's welcome Chris to the bridge. Hey, Chris, how are you today? Uh, Good morning, Rick. How are you today? I'm good. Well, let's start this way. How did a New England Italian boy end up at Penn State? I think it was uh, football. (laughs) I'd like to say it was my academic uh, (laughs) desire, but I walked on campus and I I fell in love with it, and uh, I still am a big part of it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, uh, Beaver Stadium is pretty special. The times that we've been working with Penn State the past two years has been really special for me. Uh, I think their student body is the best student fans I've ever seen. Uh, and so you probably walked on campus and got a feel for that really early. I did, and uh, I'm blessed with, after 30-something years, uh, one of my best friends in college is still my wife, and we still watch football, so it's it's wonderful. Well, let's talk about your career. So you get out of school. Where did you start your career? I started actually at an ad agency in Stamford, Connecticut. Uh, I was an account executive uh, for, oh gosh, about six months. And then my mother called back then we had no cell phones. My mother called me at work. she never did. And she said, Hey, some guy wants you to, uh, 
interview with them. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I sent a, a resume out when I was in college for an internship. I ended up having the next day off. So I went to see the guy and doubled my salary and I became a marketing guy for a construction company. <laughs> um, I did that for a couple of years and then I switched. I, I really kind of started to fall in love with brands. So I switched to a, a brand manager position for water filtration. And then, you know, I've really been kind of focused on home improvement type products. So water filters, uh, crazy glue, Elmer's glue, Werner ladders, you know, uh, all those kind of products. So home improvement has kind of been my home for 30 something years. Well, let's talk a minute about Warner. So you, you, you get to Warner and, you know, ladders had been used to cut down the nets since 1947. In 1947, Everett Case's NC State basketball team cut down the nets after winning what was then the Southern Conference Tournament. People think about NC State being in the Atlantic Coast Conference, but the ACC didn't exist until 1954. NC State was in the in the Southern Conference, and 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 so they. They used a ladder and they cut down the nets, but it had never been a branded ladder. What gave you that idea? Hmm. Well, for years, we knew the ladder was being used and we were always hoping the picture would come out uh, in the paper. We would try to get our local distributors to put ladders in the, in the uh, facilities where we knew there was going to be games. And, and I think you have to kind of set back when, when we're looked at doing the NCAA uh, partnership we had a huge market share. Uh, we had a very high brand awareness with our customers, i.e. the distribution. But the regular person doesn't want to climb a ladder. They didn't want to use it. I mean, think about having a brand where nobody really wants to use your product, even if they have to. And so we felt like we had to do something that would, would get us there. And the opportunity came up um, with one of our big customers, um, and, and we got together with CBS and, and uh, NCAA, and, you know, it just kind of worked out. You know, I, I do laugh about that when you think about it. Anytime you climb a ladder, it's because something's broken or something needs to be fixed, <laughs> and it's not like you're climbing it for something joyful, uh, and yet that is the most joyous moment in March Madness. Uh, which I think is pretty cool. As a brand guy, it's changed the way I think about things. I mean, back then, quite frankly, I was just glad to be on national TV with our brand. You know, I, honestly, I didn't really understand the implications of it, you know, 10 years later, where now you're, you're totally identified with that moment, no matter what happens. You know what I mean? So it's, it's, I look for things that didn't exist, things that you can own, uh, within the brand space, and it's probably the biggest caution I would give to brand people now when I talk to them, brand leaders. You know, just because you don't like something, doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. You know, people look at numbers and CPMs and costs and that kind of stuff, and sometimes the authenticity is really what matters. I mean, I, truth be told, I'm pretty good at horse, but I never played basketball really serious. I never watched basketball. I wasn't even into it. I was a college football and a music guy. And the fact that I was able to kind of participate in basketball and really recognize it for what it is uh, and the sport and how powerful it was to reach consumers, that's when it really all kind of hit. Well, you have a son that's playing college basketball. Do you think that maybe the fact that he watched what you did with the ladder, you know, throughout that made him want to play? I, you know, I don't know. I, uh, I, I'd like to think that would be uh, the case. You know, we've, we've always played in the driveway. We've always played horse or pig in the last 10 minutes of you know of the day in the driveway so 
if I if I have a positive contribution to my kids because of what I did, I you know I'm blessed. I, I, that's great. I never really thought about it though. Well, you know, when I think about the latter, it really kind of is a metaphor for the season. You know, you think about it to to win a championship is uphill. You you got to climb something. You know, I like to tell people it's not an escalator. <laughs> it's a ladder. You, you you have to step up. You have to you have to take it one rung at a time. Talk a little bit about that, and then how you used coaches as brand ambassadors for Warner. You know, I I preparing for this, I I thought so much about. I, I we've been so lucky. I mean, I've literally, I don't know. You probably know the stats. There's 24 of the coaches that have cut down the nets in division one still alive. And I think we met all of them, you know, through the process and all of them, not only did we meet them, but they, they spoke to our customers. They answered questions. They dined with them. They spent time with them. And you know, the, the thing that I've learned and I've now learned this across multiple sports is, you know, I think it's all coaches, but particularly division one coaches. I've never met a division one coach that I wasn't in awe of. They know, stuff from 1972 they know what kid that they wanted to get that couldn't get because his aunt jody said no they didn't she didn't like that school like they remember all that stuff and they're so dynamic and i could see how they're such great leaders i'm not saying you have to like all of them but their skill set in driving those kids and getting them through what's really a four-year program is very very tough is amazing to me so I, i i love using the coaches they helped our brand immensely but more importantly i think it it gave everybody kind of a level set that even though they were famous and on TV, they were just regular guys that had passion and, and did it. I remember um, one year when Steve Fisher talked to the Warner guest at the final four and, you know, he was an interesting story. He was an assistant coach at Michigan and Bill Frieder decided to take the Arizona state job and, and told his athletic director, <clears throat> Bo Schembechler, former football coach, uh, that he was going to go and leave and go to Arizona State. And Bo said, great, but you're not going to coach the team in the tournament. I'm going to have a Michigan man coach a Michigan team. And obviously he gave the job to Steve Fisher, and and all Steve Fisher did was run the table and win the national championship. And, uh, and he, you know, he told your your guest about, you know, you, you start the season uh, – as a as an assistant coach, and you're in in your season walking Millie the dog in the rose garden with Barbara and George, and uh, it turned out to be pretty good. We we did lose one of our guys uh, a couple of weeks ago. The great John Thompson passed away. I, I got out my list uh, over the weekend. We started the Final Four Coaches Club in 2004, and uh, <clears throat> we've lost 18 guys since then um, that showed up at the original. Uh, you know, lunch and dinner that we did and uh, some of the great coaches. But, you know, I'm thankful that we're going to have college basketball now that in spite of COVID, we're, we're coming, at least we're going to have some sort of a season, some sort of an early season, and then hopefully some sort of a NCAA tournament since we lost it last year. And, and uh, I know a bunch of coaches are out there dreaming the, the ultimate dream, which is that you finish the season you know, climbing the Warner ladder and cutting down the nets. Let's switch gears a little bit. You've joined us now to kind of build an outdoor sports division. Um, let's talk a little bit about that. You know, outdoor to me is a passion that happened to me later in life, believe it or not. I was, I think I was 43, 44, 
and all my buddies in Pennsylvania would go to camp and go hunting and I'd go up and eat with them and party with them and stuff, never hunted. And then one day I said, well, I might as well hunt. So I started hunting and I just love being outdoors. And uh, I got to the point in my career where I was like, you know what? They always say you should do the things you love. So I'm trying to do the things I love. So I'm trying to be involved in a sport where going to a trade show is exciting for me. Uh, and that's what outdoor does for me right now. Well, t- let's talk about where we are with outdoor sports with the pandemic. We've seen significant increases in hunting and fishing licensing. Uh, we're seeing more people wanting to be outdoors than, than maybe ever before. Yeah, you know, I, I, there's two parts of it to me. The first part is, you know, I think half of the country or some percentage of the country has this perspective on outdoor that I don't think um, is generally all that good. But because there's no events and because it's real authentic, people on TV talking, enjoying food and, and having a great time, their viewership now is up tremendously, up over 40 percent. Um, more, you know, the, the hunting industry has seen a decline over the last 20 years. This is the first year, literally because of the pandemic, it's made up for 20 years of licenses being down. So more people are outside. There's no, you know, there's no pandemic outside if you're in the woods by yourself and people are really taking advantage of it. I want to talk about this misconception that hunters and fishermen are not environmentalists. You know, there's this perception that you're just out there killing animals and you don't care about the outdoors. And that's the farthest from the truth. Probably the outdoorsman is the biggest environmentalist um, that we have. Uh, I would say I would say that is definitely the case. I mean, and first of all, most of all of the outdoor equipment that you buy, a big chunk of it goes uh, towards those types of programs for the government. And, and obviously there's a lot of uh, companies like the National Wild Turkey Federation and stuff that are very, very involved in those charities. A lot of the big retailers like Cabela's uh, are big, big supporters of it. You know, at the end of the day, I think people have to realize it's 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 not about the harvest. It, it really is about going out and being out in nature. You know, I archery season started on Saturday. I watched the sunrise. I mean, how many people get to say they watch the sunrise and watch leaves fall and watch the animals run around in their natural environment? I think at the end of the day, uh, this is a crossroads for outdoor. I think more people are going to start realizing that this vertical is something that, that they can get their brand message across and they can get it in a way that that's going to make sense. It's going to actually help them uh, reach more people, in, especially in, in the Midwestern, you know, red state areas. Well, let's talk about the endemics first. I mean, clearly there are certain products that you can literally put in a television show um, that you see the outdoors person, either the hunter, the fisherman, the camper, absolutely using those products. So let's let, let's go there first. Talk about about ways that can happen. Well, you know, first off, on the endemic side, and the, for those that don't know, I mean, that's that's really the brands that are that have to be part of that opportunity to do it. So that would be your arrows and your bows and your camo and all that kind of stuff. That that has is a really pretty pronounced business. It's been there for a while. Uh, they have a way of doing it, um, and it it really works for them. The way that they include their brand in the show and the way that they use social to to amplify that. What's really been an interesting growth for me and, and for some of the stuff that I've been doing in the last year or so is really been taking the non-endemics, um, taking the tool companies, taking the people that need to reach those end users 
that are hunting and fishing. I mean, when you look at our MRI data for outdoor, I mean, our, our customers, they own ATVs, they use them for work, they own um, trailers, they, they work in construction, they work in farming, they work in ad, they work in mining, big equipment, tractors. So all of those metrics, we just add up and we match brands with it. And they're finding it a tremendous way to reach their, their customers in a really authentic way. All right, let's talk about non-endemics. Let's talk about other brands that could use the imagery of outdoors. I mean, we talked a little bit about it's got it's got everything. I mean, it's got health, it's got fitness, it's got sustainability, it's got family. It seems like other brands could gravitate towards outdoor sports. Yeah, now you're into my business plan. I I, I feel like uh, food. You know, I, I I will tell you that you can. I've been on a lot of hunting trips, and when you don't get anything, it is very disappointing. But you're with friends. And you're cooking great food and you're having a beer or whatever, whatever you like to partake in. And at the end of the day, that's what it's really about. So, so to me, I've been really reaching out to food companies, to tractor companies that, you know, are really you couldn't do farming without it. Because remember, most of these shows now, a lot of them have their own leased land or work with people with with large farm tracks. And they they're actually farming, you know, their their. Uh, food and corn and all this stuff to help the population grow more in those environments. So, you know, that's, that's kind of where I focus. And I, I hope that I can get more people to understand that this is not about the harvest. This is about the whole time you're there with friends. I've never been hunting with anyone ever where I wasn't friends afterwards. And that's to me, that's the testament of the outdoors. Well, we're also seeing a trend, I think coming out of COVID of, of maybe, a lot of young people abandoning big cities and wanting to go back into more rural communities. Uh, a, we've proven you can work pretty much from anywhere. And B, they're like, you know, I, I want my children to be exposed to wide open spaces and to, to collect bugs and, uh, and uh, you know, wet a line and catch a fish or, or, or go for a, a walk and ultimately to, to you know, to to have your first hunt, to go through a process of, of, of shooting ducks or, or, or sitting in a deer stand. I think that trend's going to continue. Don't you agree? Oh yeah. I think, I think it will continue. I, I think next year we're projecting it to be up significantly again. And again, the next generation will come out and experience that. And I think they'll start to, you know, remember everybody doesn't get the same thing out of it. Some people may say, you know what? I just love going out with my uncle once a year. I get to hang with my uncle for three days at a camp out in the woods. And, and I think those, those things for kids are, are, are really great. I, w- I will tell you for me that I, I believe very, very strongly that I'm not a big conspiracy theorist. Okay. I grew up in the city, but not really the big city, you know, the opportunity for me to be 55 and know that I can grow my own food that I could, if I had to hunt my own meat, that I knew my environment enough to manage it, to grow my own stuff and to take care of my property. That gives me a sense of responsibility. It gives me a sense of love for my environment that I really, quite frankly, never had before. Yeah, I agree. And in these challenging times, that's a pretty good skill sets. We've seen more gardens uh, since World War II, um, you know, with home gardens and people growing their own crops. Even in cities, they they had, uh, you know, balcony gardens and uh, rooftop gardens and all those types of things that I think lend in it. But the truth is this, we, we need outdoor spaces. Uh, we, we need, 
you know, pure areas that are undeveloped. We recently had here in South Carolina, thank goodness, um, down in Buford County, there's a wonderful place called Bray's Island. And Bray's is, is really a, a, a bird sanctuary. And, you know, a big international developer came in and said, we want to build a great resort here. And ultimately, the community rejected it. And I was glad. I, we drove by Bray's Island yesterday, and I said to Charlotte, there are plenty of resorts you can go to a resort any day. There are not many Braze Islands left, uh, the natural yeah. kinds of places. Well, you know, you started out with the, the Italian New Englander. You know, to me, I'm going to keep pushing the outdoor window until I can get the hunters to realize that when you come back from a hunt to walk out to your backyard and grab a fresh tomato and fresh basil and put it over mozzarella, it's just the right, it's the right way to end a day, you know, and I, I think that's the kind of thing I want to integrate food and outdoor together, you know. Well, that's a great place for us to end today. I, I think we've got big, big things ahead for our outdoor sports division under your leadership. We're very, very excited about it, and uh, I'm looking forward to the future. So thanks for being with us today from the bridge. Thank you. Let's get up on the old soapbox. The actor Chadwick Boseman tragically passed away last month at age 43. He was a native of Anderson, South Carolina, and is best known for playing Black Panther, but also played a number of historical figures, including Floyd Little, James Brown, and Thurgood Marshall. But my favorite role of his was Jackie Robinson, in 21. In that movie, there was a wonderful scene between him and Harrison Ford, who played Branch Rickey, the GM of the Brooklyn Dodgers. Jackie said to Mr. Rickey, why me? Branch Rickey smiles and says, Jackie, I'm a Methodist. You're a Methodist. God's a Methodist. (laughs) I love that scene since I'm a Methodist. The Methodist Church was founded by John Wesley, and Wesley left us one of the greatest quotes of all time, which is a true roadmap to how to live. He said, and I quote, we should do all the good you can by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can, as long as ever you can. If we all did this, we would solve all the world's problems, wouldn't we? And that's my view from the soapbox. Believe it or not, but I recently got back on the road with Rick. Charlotte and I took a 10-day road trip to the Outer Banks of North Carolina. I had heard about an old drive-in restaurant in Salter Path, North Carolina, near Atlantic Beach. And so we stopped at the Big Oak Drive-In for what turned out to be the best shrimp burger I have ever eaten. It was made with small creek shrimp fried lightly in Cracker Mill with both tartar and cocktail sauce, coleslaw, and a little touch of vinegar on a soft steamed bun. It was simply heavenly. 
we shared French fries, onion rings, and torpedo-shaped hush puppies. It's worth the drive along the coast of North Carolina, on the road with Rick, to the Big Oak Drive-In. Another great show is in the books. Thanks to Chris Filardi for sharing the Warner Ladder story. We'll catch back up with you next week from the bridge.